Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, NX, which is Numerical Elixir, version 0.1 was released. There's a blog post announcing this, and it's a good resource for understanding what NX is, how it started, the journey it's taken, and some ideas about its future. So if you are interested in playing with machine learning in Elixir and you're coming to it now, check out this post. It's a great resource. I didn't notice anything in particular that's like a big new release. I may have mixed something there, but we were talking about it before the show and we kind of think maybe this is an example of a milestone level of confidence, not like 1.0, but something saying, hey, we feel this is in a much better place now. Next up, along the lines of numeric processing, a project called Num Errol. I'm not actually sure how to pronounce it. It looks like numeral with some letters missings, but it's like the num Earl, Earl like for Erlang. Numeral. I see what they're doing there. I choose to say num Earl. No, it's definitely numeral, like because that's a word. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a library of fast matrix operations for Erlang written as native extensions or NIFs done as a master's thesis. This project will continue in 2022 with improvements for concurrency and scalability. Yeah, and looking at this, I kind of got the sense that maybe at this stage, it seems like it's a pure research-focused effort. But it is cool to see further exploration in this space. And I'm hopeful that any learnings and improvements that come in one Beam language are transferable to another. We'll just have to wait and see what happens. Well, we've seen other research-focused kind of like theses. Is is it plural? Is it thesi? Thesi? Okay. Uh, English is my first language. <laughs> Ryu in Erlang was string processing. That was born out of a thesis, you know, re- research report out of, you know, somebody's doctorate. So, hey, maybe this is uh, something that'll get merged to, to like Erlang itself eventually. And I think, honestly, Dialyzer was like that as well, that it was a thesis project or master's. So yeah, a lot of good stuff can come out of these things. Very cool. Hey, so speaking of 2022, the year that we are currently in. Wait, are we? It's crazy to say. Yes, we're in 2022. (laughs) Well, speaking of 2022, Lambda Days is a functional programming focus conference has moved their dates with sickness and all that stuff that's going around. I'm sure it's incredibly hard to like plan a conference. So my heart goes out to (laughs) y'all conference planners having to deal with this. So again, Lambda Days is moving their their dates. It was originally planned for February 10th to the 11th of this year, 2022. But as you can imagine, due to the pandemic, travel, health concerns, yada, yada, they are moving it to July. Don't have a firm date, but I do know it's in July. Uh, So we got a link to the tweet. So perhaps they'll follow up on what exact day it'll, it'll end up landing. If you have tickets to that, you probably already know that. They've probably sent out emails, but keep track of that. Make sure that your airplane tickets, uh, if you're traveling there or train tickets, yeah, just make sure your travel is today. So heads up, Lambda Days is moving to July. And next up, IntelliJ, the IDE, has Elixir support through a plugin. And version 12.1 was released, adding support for Elixir 1.13. So I've used IntelliJ previously as RubyMine, which was IntelliJ, which is a Java-focused IDE. But with all a lot of plugins, they've kind of branded it for different programming environments, be it Python or Ruby. And this one is an unofficial Elixir support. 
It's L. Imhoff who has been shepherding this project for a long time, and it's great to see the continued advances. And I know that code editor choices are a very personal thing. Sometimes there's reasons to choose one editor over another because of history, experience, preferences, or maybe because of the other projects you have to work with. And it's just great to see that IntelliJ has continuing Elixir support. Next up, xdocs 0.27 was released. And we'll drop a link to the NX library docs, which actually has the updated xdocs running in production. So this is actually a pretty cool update. I was driving around and I kind of feel like it fixes some of my primary complaints. I mean, I would go to the sidebar and I would click on it and it would drop it down, but I just wanted to go there. Why can't I? And then I had to like, I'll find another link to click on to get there. So now they've redone it. When you click on something, it expands and goes there. There's some more JavaScript in there. It's collapsible. They've moved some of the settings around. The dark theme looks nicer. Anyways, go check it out. Lots of cool stuff. But the main thing we wanted to point out here is the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation is credited as having funded the work. So we're thankful to them for helping out in this effort. It looks really nice. Yeah, I'd say the, the biggest thing I've noticed is the pages and modules tab. It's so much more intuitive to me that now I can switch between these two. So I often forget like which one of these views am I looking at? That's pretty cool. And then, like you said, the dark theme does look like it's uh, adjusted a bit. It looks It looks darker to me. Yeah, it has a little bit more blue. If you put it up side by side and compare with another one that hasn't received this new treatment, you do see a tire contrast to me, like the text is brighter against the background, which I think is probably helpful for accessibility as well. All right, last up, Brooklyn Myers, the host of the Elixir Newbie podcast, has announced an interesting development. So we'll link out to uh, the Twitter status and his website, but he's working with Dockyard as an Elixir educator now to lead the creation of an Elixir developer bootcamp. So it's still really early and we don't have any details yet. Like, is this an internal thing for Dockyard or is this like a community-wide? So we'll follow up on that in the future. But we're really excited to see that development. I love seeing this happen out there. And I think it's a a much needed thing. So congrats, Brooklyn, for leading up the efforts in Dockyard for for leading that uh, along with. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Jose Valim. Jose, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me back. We have a special treat lined up. So May 2022 happens to be the 10-year anniversary of Elixir. So we're going to talk about what that means in terms of what about Elixir and what milestones. So we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But really, we're talking about the version of Elixir that we know and love today. And to help us count down to May, we have Jose Valim joining us once a month to talk through some of the journey along the way. This gives us both a chance to reflect on where we've been as a community and as a language, but it's also a chance to dig a little deeper and understand some of the changes that came about in the language and why they happened. We're also looking forward to maybe getting some insight into some powerful features that are in the standard library, in the Elixir runtime, that we may not be taking advantage of that they've been there for a long time. So looking forward to getting some insights there as well. Doing one episode a month, today is the first of five stops, and we're super glad that Jose is here. For those who are still coming new to the community, maybe you can give a brief introduction to yourself. I am the creator of Elixir. I work at uh, Dashbit. We are a small company, very focused 
on open source and on the Elixir ecosystem. I'm a Brazilian. I live in Poland. It's winter here now, so pretty cold. Hopefully by May, it's going to be pretty warm. I would love to touch base first and find out where you want to start with this, because we're not starting with the very earliest commits to Elixir. We're going to start talking around 1.0-ish. Maybe you can kind of give us an intro as to where we are going to start. I thought what would be really nice for us to do is that on each episode, we actually go through the change logs and we try to get an understanding of the changes that happen to the language, why they happen to the language. We are going to learn about features, for example, that we had way back then and people, listeners, right, they could be using today, but it's forgotten or it's kind of a secret that was added and then it was not like repeated and got a little bit lost. So I think it's going to be a lot of interesting things. And I think I was preparing for this episode, like going through like the first three change logs. And I think we already can see like a very big change in tone and narrative. So it will be nice to explore that. And the reason why I think should be 1.0 is because before 1.0, there was a lot of changes to the language that they did not actually become part of the language. So I think going through those would not be that helpful. So I think, well, no, it's a good starting point. And we'll probably be able to see things where we added them and then we'll be like, oh, we added this, but it was deprecated like three, three years later because we figured out it's a bad idea. I think that's also going to happen, but I think most of the lessons there are going to be positive. So before we dive in, what is this the 10-year anniversary of? The first commit, the first time you thought about making it, this is a very good question because I ask myself a lot, right? Like, when was Elixir actually born, right? And the first commit, we actually have already passed 10 years. And it was uh, January last year, so kind of uh, a year and a half. So what I did is that I was going to compare with other languages how those things usually work or look like. And they usually consider the, the anniversary to be the first public release. So the first release, I would say, hey, this is the thing. So back then, somebody would go to a mailing list and say, hey, you know, I created this small programming language, right? And that's how people would use it. A lot of times people would work on something privately for a, a long period of time, or a company would work. And then when they feel ready to announce that initial version, that's when they came out. For Elixir, the development has always been like public. The name was always there, but the language was like completely different than what what it is today, like the first very early prototypes of Elixir was still like object-oriented. So it was very, very different. So I thought, well, the first release of the Elixir that we have today that had like the main ingredients, let's say, it was still very much changing, but the main ingredients were there. Uh, that was Elixir 0.5 that came out in May 2012. So that's what we will be celebrating. We had a logo at that point, I, I'm almost sure. So, yeah. Jose, obviously your first memory of Elixir is going to be way different than everybody else's. But one of the things that I remember, maybe, and maybe we can all share uh, like a, a, the, our most earliest you know, memory of coming to Elixir, which isn't necessarily 1.0. If I remember correctly, I think I came in around 1.2, 1.1 maybe. One of the things that I remember was a module, it was short for dictionary, it was dict and hash sets and sets. And I remember being a little confused on what that's meant to be for, and this was before maps. 
help me understand like what the story was around map set, set, hash, dict, you know, how, how did all that stuff play together? So let's start setting up the ground here, okay? Elixir 1.0 came out, okay? So we are back in September 2014. We just had the first Elixir conference in Austin. It was really nice. Dave Thomas was speaking. Greg was speaking. There were Martin and Martin. They gave a presentation of code reloading. Devon spoke. Chris McCord spoke as well. It was at this conference that I actually got convinced and sold on Phoenix, but that's a separate story. (laughs) (laughs) And for me, like if we go back to to that talk, it's probably still up. I think one of the things that I was talking about is like what it means to be one no. I think there are like two kinds of one knows. One is like, hey, this is our starting point. We are still going to, to you know, add a lot of things and continue like changing the way we, we build software like drastically. And for us, for Elixir, it was like, hey, you know, this is the foundation and we are going to build on top of this. And when it comes to the foundation, I don't expect things changing, right? Because Elixir was designed to be this extensible language where I can get the language and bring to new domains. I think as we talk in the episodes, you're going to see different examples of this happening. But that was my thinking back then. And we were just coming off into Alexir 1.0. We were just coming off a very big change, probably the most significant change that happened to the Erling Virtual Machine. The biggest change to the Erling Virtual Machine, I would say, that happened in, in the last 10 years, the most recent one is the JIT, I would say, right, in my opinion. But if we say, well, what is the biggest one before that? I would say is the introduction of maps. If I remember correctly, Erlang OTP 17 introduced maps to the language. So before Erlang OTP 17, we didn't have a built-in associative key value data structure. Okay. We had things like they still exist in Erlang. Well, and it's deprecated in Elixir. We had things like hashdict which was an implementation of a associative key value data structure using lists and tuples. Okay, we have things like hash set, which was implementation of a set in a similar vein. So that's how we did things back then. We couldn't do pattern matching on those data structures like we can do with maps. We could do on, we could do on tuples and lists, but not on those data structures. Uh, and then you can ask, well, you know, if we didn't have maps and we didn't have structs either, right? So what we had was records. And this was actually one of my favorite, like when I look back, I have a very fond history because when Erlang introduced maps, you know, we were like, okay, now we need to change the language. We need to change Elixir just before the 1.0. We need to change Elixir to incorporate maps and how are we going to do that? And I remember I wrote a proposal to the mailing list. It got shut down. And then I wrote another one and then another one. There are probably four or five proposals and people are like, mm, this doesn't feel right. We can probably find this way back, the discussions on and how we are going to incorporate maps into the language. Until one day I thought, well, if I was going to design the language today, knowing that we have maps in the language, how would I design the language? So I took a step back because that was the time I can afford to change the language because I can't do that after 1.0, right? So I took a step back and say, okay, records are going to go out. And then we were going to ask, well, do we need keyword lists? So we kind of like revisited everything. And we got to the scenario that we have today where we have maps, we have structs, and we do have records still, but they don't play a very big role. They are useful in some very particular situations, 
but they don't play a big role in the language. So that's why. And as we go for the change logs, we are going to talk a lot about those changes that you mentioned, like what is hash set, what is hash dict, right? What those things are about. And they were being phased out as it was kind of planned when they came out that those things, they would be phased out. And that's what we did in the first releases. That's a great marking off point to say this is where we're kind of starting from. So maybe we can jump into the next phase, which was the change log for version 1.1. Cause I think that's when I came into Elixir. It was after Dave Thomas had written his book. So there's already something there, right? And it's already stable enough where I felt like this is something I can play with and, and really get into. This is around September 2015, one year after your 1.0 release. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. And and this is funny because you can see like, so today we have like this to, we do a release every six months and this one, it took a year, right? Which, you know, when you think about it, it's like, it's a lot of time, right? But it took a year for us to do the release. The reason why it took a year as well is that when Erlang added maps to the virtual machine, on Erlang 17, if I remember correctly, we only had these small maps. So they were only efficient up to 32 keys. Only when Erlang 18 came out that they had the, the, the maps, they would change the internal representation so they can go to millions, tens of millions of keys. We were in the middle of like this big change happening to, to the Erlang VM. So we're also like, we were waiting. We're like, okay, 18 is going to finish this, like this introduction of maps. And what does that mean? And we are waiting to package all of those changes together and release on that one. It's interesting to hear like uh, from the, from this side. So so Elixir is stable enough for 1.0, but you know we're coupled to this other language that is also changing. You know Erlang, and it's completely you know reinventing the way that we do a very common data structure. And so like 1.0 is supposed to mark the stability of something, but it really sounds like 1.1. And Erlang 18 is when you could use things that you would use, you know, the data structures today in, in, in Elixir. And that's about when I came into Elixir too. That's some of my earliest memories of it is trying to understand the difference between this new map thing and why I needed to like do a compile time check to see what version of Elixir I'm at and then do this, this, uh, this other map like thing to me. <laughs> but another thing, another early memory of mine was the developer experience of Elixir. And even as early, uh, you know, as, as 1.1, I believe, there were several things that were interesting to me. There was, you know, mix, mix test. The, the fact that it was built in to me, which was a new concept to me as a developer, that was amazing, which is talking about XUnit there. Mix itself, you know, with the concept of combining, you know, like this task runner and this package manager, you know, built being so built in with Hex, but then also like error messages were surprisingly more useful to me than than I've seen on other languages. Tell me a little bit about the history there. Like it seemed like maybe in your mind, you know, you're you're marking the stability of the language. Were you turning your your focus to the community at large and making it easier for folks to or or not easier, funner. Maybe it's more enjoyable to develop. What was your focus around that time then? I may recall things incorrectly, but if I remember correctly at the time, I just mentioned that, you know, I watched the Prisma Core presentation on Phoenix and I, I got bought on it. So I think this time 
I was uh, working a lot with Crazon Phoenix. That's one of the things that I was doing. And one of the things that I've explored for me and James Fish, who was on the Elixir team and other members of the Elixir team explored a lot back then was what would eventually become Gen Stage. I think we're probably going to talk more about this in like in, in future episodes, but this is kind of where I was. I think you you nailed it. It's like I was focusing a lot on the community as well. And I think that played a big factor on like waiting a, week, a year for a release to happen. And the focus was, you know, working on the web part, but I was also thinking a lot, well, I think Elixir is going to be really good for this data processing stuff. So I was also thinking about how we are going to shape this foundation and we were having conversations back then, other communities about like reactive streams and things like that. And I was like, this is going to be perfect for the language on machine. How, how can we bring those things in? I was thinking a lot about those things. And, and that was what uh, eventually led to Gen Stage and then Flow and then Broadway. Those thinkings, they started back here as well. What I love about the Elixir changelog is it does a really good job of, like any really good open source changelog of saying, here's the new features, here's bug fixes, deprecations. You know, it's very well kept and organized. And I, I really appreciate that. And we depend on that as, as we refer to what's happening in the language. And one of the ones I saw in 1.1 is this string function called Jaro distance. I remember first seeing that and I was like, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> Jaro is J-A-R-O. What is this and how can people use this? Jaro is short for Jaro Wrinkler. It's the algorithm that implements and now that I'm thinking about it, it may be that Jaro Winkler is like two names of two different people. And it's kind of mean, isn't it? That the only one gets referred in the function name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's a very weird function to have indeed, but it's very useful because you can use this, these functions to do video main suggestions. So I think the first video main suggestion we added to Elixir was for mixed tasks. So if you had a typo in the mixed task text instead of test, for example, we would say, hey, did you, did you mean test? And with time, we started sprinkling did you mean everywhere, like function names and this kind of stuff. And that's the function that we, we use for it. This is like one of those little nuggets that's been there for a long time that for those of us who've come to Elixir at some point, we may not have even known this function is there. It's available for us to use in our applications as well. That's just, that's a, a fun little Easter egg kind of hidden gem. Can be really useful for libraries as well, right? Depending on what you're doing, can be very handy. So while we're talking about useful things from, this is 1.1, do you want to talk about some of the neat things that were added to XUnit? When I was preparing, right, there were, I think, two, two nice features that were added back then. Maybe people can hit us up after the show, right, after they listen to the show and say like, hey, I did not know about this. I think that would be very nice feedback to have. So one of them is that, so when you add a test in Elixir, you say test, and then you pass a string, which is like the name of the test, the description of the test, and then there is the do-end block. In Elixir 1.1, you could remove the do-end block and that will mark the test as not implemented. And that was requested because sometimes, uh, it's not the way I work, but a lot of people, they like to write a bunch of test descriptions first, and then they go around to implementing them. That was it. And the other one that we added was the ability to skip tests. So you can do module attribute tag, at tag, and then you pass the atom skip, and that test is going to be skipped. And the difference is that 
if a test is skipped, I'm almost sure that the suite is still considered successful. But if the test is not implemented because you you didn't put it when blocked, then that's a failure, right? You would not be able to commit a not implemented test, but you can, like if you have CI, for example. CI wouldn't pass for a not implemented test, but it would pass for a skip test because skip is meant to be like intentional or something like that. I wasn't aware this was added so far back, but that not implemented, I used it all the time. When LiveView was coming out, I'd go through and say, all right, here's the whole UI, here's the whole suite of tests I need to write. And then I kind of had a to-do list of, and I would even start it on the bottom because I'm OCD and I wanted to see the passing ones on the bottom and the failing ones on the top. So I would start implementing from the bottom up and then just checking off every unimplemented test as I go. Good to you, Kate, being a nice TDD developer. I don't know if it's TDD, it's just to-do driven testing. (laughs) (laughs) Do you guys want to know what is the most mind-blowing feature in Elixir 1.1? 1.1, tell me. Oh yeah. 1.1. I think this just show like how things work back then. This is a mixed feature. And the feature is, I think I'm quoting the change law correctly here, only recompile compile time dependencies in mixed projects. This should considerably speed up recompilation times in electric projects. So whoever watched like any of my talks in the last like five years, you probably heard me talking about, you know, improving compilation time. So what I'm meaning to tell here is that back in Elixir 1.0, every time we change the file, we compile all files in your project, Uh. (laughs) (laughs) right? Which... Makes sense, right? Because going back then, right? Like which big, which big Elixir projects we had, right? Like at most you get a project of like 20 files. I don't know if you go back in time and get Acto, which was one of the earliest projects and probably considerably big at this point. It's going to be, you know, 20 files or something like that. That's still going to be reasonably fast to compile everything. And then I think at this point, and, and you are going to see a lot of this happening here. It's like, you know, People will start using the language more, and then the projects they start to get bigger, the projects start to get more complex. We have to manage it, manage this. We have to deal with this somehow. And this is the first step. And I'm pretty sure we are going to talk about this on every episode. But this is the first step. So now, what does, does this change mean? Like, if module A calls module B at compilation time, and what that means is outside of a function, like in the module body or as a macro or require it, we if B changes, we recompile A. And, and that was the first step that we did in this direction of trying to understand more how the code works, trying to track what are the compile time dependencies, improve the compilation times. I, I just want everybody like to think, well, imagine going back in time, Elixir 1.0, doing a change and seeing like 200 files being recompiled every time. <laughs> yep. If I remember right, that was a feature of 1.13 here in recent history to revisit recompilation and like being smarter about what, you know, what things do get recompiled. And so that's pretty cool to think, like, if you wanted to make this even better, you might end up be touching 10-year-old code at this point or a nine-year-old code at this point, you know? Yeah. But that it's lasted this long, I think, you know, really, really shows like the power of what of what was important back then, you know, it still continues to be important today, you know, as, as well as, but we, we continue to iterate over it and by we, I mean, you know, the, the, the list of contributors writing a, actual Elixir core code. <laughs> and I'm sure we will be coming back to that throughout this series of 
opportunities where you said, hey, we can make this smarter. Because, you know, like really, as a startup project idea, you have an MVP. What can I get out that solves this problem and does a good job that I can build on? And that's really what you've got at this point with 1.0. And now you're starting with 1.1. You're like, yeah, let's, let's continue to refine, especially with this compilation thing. So I think that brings us into version 1.2, which I think you have around January 2016. So maybe you can give us a little bit of highlights of what happened in this release. That was a very short gap, right? So September to... January. Yeah, that's four months. It may be the shortest gap. Just going back slightly on 1.1, I think new OTP releases back then was in September, which aligns exactly with everything that we were talking about, you know, the whole migration from maps and this kind of stuff. So I think in Elixir 1.2 was when we kind of finished this journey. So maps, they can now support millions of keys. So we deprecated dict, we deprecated hash dict, we deprecated the hash set module. So yeah, if you are a new Elixir developer and you never heard about this stuff, you don't have to worry about them indeed, right? They, if you go to the documentation in the sidebar and you scroll, they are still all there under the deprecated section, but nobody uses them. And if you use them, you're going to get a warning. I think there were two other uh, big, well, there were a lot of big changes in here actually on one two. So one of the things that we, uh, in, in this journey as well for finishing maps, one of the features that they added to the Erlang VM as well is that you can have variables and expressions as map keys, especially if you want to use in pattern matching. So today, if you want to pattern match on a map, you can say, hey, I want to pattern match on the key foo and foo is an atom. That's doable, right? And But you can also say, hey, I want to pattern match on this key and this key is given by this variable. So you use the pin operator and the variable name. So this feature was added in 1.2 as well because it was not there in previous Erlang versions. Are you saying that the pin operator was introduced in 1.2? No, no. Just the pin operator in a map key. I see. Gotcha. Very specific to maps. And another one, which I think a lot of people use it all the time, is the with special form. It's hard to describe with, but when you have to match on a bunch of different conditions and get an outcome, this was added in 1.2. And I think one of the things that is interesting, like when we add a feature like this to the language, it goes for a period of time where people are using it, sometimes abusing it. And then it takes some time for you to find like which patterns you want to encourage and which patterns you don't want to encourage. But yeah, this was added in 1.2. And I think we saw a couple different uh, styles standing coming up of how to use with. And later on, we settled like, hey, th- this is how you should write your code. Like in the docs, if you go to the docs of with today, we say, hey, don't do this. Because it's a pattern that we saw standing out. Like there are better ways of doing that. So some of the patterns that you're talking about, are you talking about like don't do like tagged tuples? Yes. So like, yeah, like trying to mark where it fell out of the with statement with the tuple. You're like, don't do that. Like, yeah, I, I've, I've seen that a lot. Has, has there been other things where, where you found like with to be like this double-edged sword? So, so the reason, so just to clarify, the reason why I think the tagged tuples is a bad pattern is because what, what are you going to do if you don't have with? You're going to write a bunch of cases, one inside the other. Right, and imagine that you have a bunch of cases where the 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 Pokemon clause, the catch-all clause of the case, they all, all return the same value. Right, you don't want to repeat this over and over and over again. Right, so 
Reef was born from the from the scenario where we're like, hey, I don't care about the like, I don't want to repeat the return type because they should all be the same. And then when you add tagged tuples because you want to make a distinction in the return type, it's like, well, you know, then don't use with because it was added to solve the exact opposite problem. And there are better ways for you to change your data. I really love with, but I realize that there, there there's two sides of it, right? There's the, the, the abuse of it. But I feel like with really changed the way that Elixir felt. And Phoenix, for me personally, is the one that really introduced it and pushed it forward, especially with the fallback controller in Phoenix 1.3. Oh, nice. Yeah, it it changed the way it it felt to me because I don't think it's a monad, but there was this this flow. It is a generalized monad. Yeah. But yeah. The thing is that is, is I could see the happy path, which pattern matching lets me see the happy path. And usually I pattern match what I want first. And so I see the, the, the happy path first. And with with statements, I got to see my happy path code all at the top, and then all my unhappy path, you know, all the all the, the hundred lines of catches, you know, down there or or uh, <laughs> else's. I mean, <laughs> to to divert, you know, the unhappy stuff. But I thought that that really changed the way that Elixir felt at that point too, especially with with Phoenix, you know, pushing it forward uh, as well. So Elixir 1.2 really feels like the beginning to me personally, and maybe to a lot of other other folks, you know, the way that Elixir feels today, even, you know, map is, you know, real and being used now. You've got the with statement that feels like Elixir to me. Yeah. And, and there, are, there are a couple more interesting anecdotes that I, I want to share. So when you said about the fallback controller, and that's something that Chris McCord, he has always focused on. He was like, you know, I don't want to come up with like my own abstractions. Like I don't want Phoenix to have its own way of doing everything. He always asks himself like, what would be the Elixir way of solving it? So it's really nice to hear from you that, you know, that we've really clicked for you with the fallback controller because I think that's exactly what Chris was going for. He was like, you know, I, I want people to use the Elixir future when building their application. So that's one anecdote. And the second one is that we talked about monads, right? This was in 2015. Yeah, so Jessica Kerr, she spoke at Elixir Conf 2015. I've met her before at previous events, and she she was the one who helped me discover and find a way of like how streams work in Elixir. I loved having conversations with her back then. We haven't met in a while, but... We were talking, and one of the things that she said was, I'm paraphrasing here, but I think she said something like, I don't think a programming language should have monads. They should have instantiation of monads. So what she means is that, you know, because monads meant to be like very generic from the Haskell sense. So list comprehensions, for example, for in Elixir and in Haskell as well, those are monads, right? But that's a very specific monad tailored for lists. And then with, I said it's a generalized monad, but what I mean is that it's a generalized either or left-right monad. So, you know, it's like one conversation that you have and then it puts a seed in, in, in your head, you know, and then you're like, well, that conversation later is help you shape the language and how you want to design some particular things. And that's why with mirrors for so much is because from a general perspective, a general point of view, they are instances of monads. Nobody needs to know about it, right? It's not really important, but that's what they are. And actually, I have a third anecdote, is that there is a EEP, Erlang Enhancement Proposal, 
adding something very similar to with to Erlang. And I think it will come on Erlang 25. So Erlang is getting its own with too. I think it's really valuable to understand because when people come to Elixir, it oftentimes seems to be their very first exposure to functional programming. And when you start getting into functional programming, you've heard about things like monads and functoids. At least my experience has been, it's very scary. And it's like, oh, I, it's too academic. I don't get it. But I remember when I first saw with, it took a little bit to kind of click with me and get what it was doing. But then it's like, wow, this is, this is great. This is so cool. I totally agree with David's idea that it is when we had maps with pattern matching on map keys and with that is when that really felt like Elixir to me. Like that's, that's what I think of as Elixir. But I can't let this other comment that you said pass by. You called it the Pokemon clause, the, the catch them all. So I, I just have to call that out. I, I love that. It's not an original thought. I don't remember who said first, but I definitely stole from somebody. I, I'm going to read the change log here, okay? So this is about mix. So Umbrella applications are now able to share both build and configuration files. This aims to drastically reduce compilation times in Umbrella projects by adding the following, and then it has a snippet of how you change your Umbrella project. So the reason I want to call this out is because before 1.2, Umbrella applications, they worked exactly as what the NERVS team likes to call poncho projects, poncho application. That's exactly how they worked before. But people are like, no, I actually want them to share all of the build and the configuration. If you go read like the, the mix guide, we talk about Umbrella applications there. I think Umbrella applications, they beat a lot of people over time. And there are some people that really like them. And there are some people that really don't like them, like hate them. I think even go up to that point. <laughs> Again, like when you are so early, right? You very early back then, you, you, you don't know, you're still figuring out what are the good practices and the bad practices. So when we did this change in one, two, we were still figuring out what is, you know, what are the pros and cons of Umbrella applications? So today, when you read the docs, we are just like, we're in your face. Like, you know, like, this has those very big downsides. And this is what you should be careful. And if you're running to those issues, you should not be using an Umbrella. Today, we can say this, right? And it's, it's very clear and it's documented. But back then, we, we, we didn't know yet, right? We were still like trying to find the footing. And the other thing with Mix, and I think this is a very important change, is that it's just funny to think about those things. We didn't consolidate protocols back then by default. So if, if you are listening to this and say like, what is protocol consolidation? I don't know what this is. And I think that's exactly the point. You don't need to know about this today. <laughs> but what this means, protocol consolidation is an optimization. So we make all the protocol dispatching super fast. And we didn't do this before. The protocol lookups, you had a flag that enabled this and you would enable it only for production. So for example, sometimes people, they would do like a Phoenix benchmark back then. They'll say, hey, it's super slow. And then the first question somebody would ask, like, have you enabled protocol consolidation in production? I oh, vaguely remember that, yeah. Yeah, but with time, we learned how to make the protocol consolidation like super fast and make sure that it runs uh, concurrently to the point that we could enable it by default and like a whole bunch of problems disappeared. 
just to recover like where where we've been, you know, we're talking about so far about a year and a half's worth of work from 1.0 to 1.1 to 1.2. This is about a year and a half worth of of work. You know, we're we're in January 2016 at this point. The big thing in 1.3, which was the next the next release, and maybe the last one we'll we'll talk about here. There was a big pain point that I had. You know, maybe I should blame myself, but I tend to work with dates and times and date times and time zones and all that kind of stuff. In my personal background, having come from Ruby, it was pretty nice to be able to go like time.zone.parse, whatever string, you know. And then you'd, you'd have several classes that, that could represent that. And uh, I, I never dug in to understand all those different classes back in Ruby days. But when I was in Elixir, I realized where are these? <laughs> Where, where's, you know, the date, the time, the naive date time, the calendar, you know, concept, the calendar didn't exist until 1.3. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think you told the story correctly. It, what was happening is that we have like two diverging libraries and that was generating a lot of conflict. And then I think both Paul and Lau, the maintainers of those libraries, they reached out to me and said like, hey, you know, like this is important. We need to standardize this. We need to be part of the language. So we got together, we lifted all the requirements, all the problems we want to solve. We want the calendars to be configurable. We want to have like these data types. We want to handle time zones. And we came up with four data types. So dates only date, right? There is no time to it. Then there is time, which is only time. And there is naive date time. And the reason why it's called naive date time, the other way we could call it, it could be uh, wall date time. The reason it's that the naive date time is because if you have a date time without a time zone attached to it, they, it may not exist, right? And this is very weird to think about. How can a given instant in time, like a date and a time not exist? And that's because of things like daylight saving times, right? So depending on where you are in the world, you move your clock ahead and then a whole hour disappears. Or depending where you are in the world, like, you're going back on the clock, which means that there is a given hour that appears twice. Or, you know, sometimes people, they just change time zones. And then there is like, it's kind of like a, a given instant disappears forever in that particular place. So that's why it's naive. It, you know, it may not exist. If you are in UTC, then it always exists because there is no jump. But that was the thinking. And then there's the daytime, which has all the time zone information. And this was like the beginning of the work. So what we did is, was that we just created the data types, we just created the structs. If we go back to the docs back here, they would probably have like three or four functions at best because the idea was that the existing libraries, they would continue providing almost all the important functionality. And what we are going to see in future releases is us handling a bit more in our calendar data types. We're adding features slowly after each release for all the different use cases. So I remember, Jose, when those changes happened and naive date time came in and it's just trying to get my head around, when do I use this? When do I use that? And on ecto schemas, what's the right thing to do? And it really was just a, a process to understand. And really it does come down to, you know, time zones and daylight savings time. I just really want to get rid of those daylight saving time. <laughs> Everyone's UTC, done. Yeah. <laughs> Computer systems have to deal with this and there's always some bug in some system that comes up every year. But all right, but so that that is when that came in. And I remember Timex and I, I can't remember the name of the other library. Calendar. Calendar, right. What I think is great about that just is the idea that 
two different competing library authors said, you know, this is really important. We're not hung up on whose library wins. It's like, we need to have a good solution for Elixir and that they're able to work with you and coming up with something that really solved this problem in a much more elegant way. I really appreciate that. Just, I think it's a testament to the community. Yeah, it was a great experience and I learned a lot in this process. And it's very funny because sometimes people, they come and they say, well, this looks complicated. Why we couldn't do this way? For example, I had a recent discussion about somebody, why we don't use like the, the time zones in, in the Postgres database. And then when you ask the, the person, like how are you going to handle this and this and this other scenario? And then they're like, oh, now I see. Like, I see why we need to, to have the distinction because I'm not handling this in my code at all. And it may actually be a problem. Yeah, I think somebody also did a recent tweet like that they had a fault in their code, but Elixir caught it and raised about having a duplicated hour in a daylight saving time thing. Something would happen twice. Elixir asks you to solve that problem. You have to better match on that particular return type. It's like ambiguous time or something like that. Yes. Yeah. So they're like, oh, I'm glad you told me because, you know, if it moves forward, right, what is going to happen? And the reason why we need to tell you is because depending on the application that you are using, you actually need to inform your users, right? You need to say, hey, you are scheduling a meeting here for somebody that's going to have an ambiguous time. Uh, you need to do something about this. Otherwise, you may lose the meeting, right? Yeah, or important events might fire twice, and that could be a problem. So now I know that in 1.3, there were some big changes for Mix. Maybe you can walk us through some of those. We added Mix Ref, and this, again, it goes back to compilation time, improving compilation time. So Mix Ref is a task that tells you information about your code and how the files and modules, they are related to each other. And when we added MixRef, we also added the function undefined warning for external functions. So if you call a module like string dot, I don't know, you have a typo, you, you write split with two T's or something like that. We say, hey, this function does not exist. We did not have those warnings before. This was when we added them and today, we brought them into the compiler. They're happening as part of the compiler. So things change, but this is where it was happening. I think this was an important change to help people like catch bugs, catch flaws when refactoring their code. Something else that we did back then, and I, I think this goes back to this story, right? Like the applications are getting larger. Before Elixir 1.3, we would print like... For every file in your application, we would say compiling this file, compiling this file. <laughs> Which again, it's cute when you have 20 files, right? But when you have 200 files, you don't want like to lose your scroll back in your terminal because you just ran compile, right? So we change it to what you have today, which is like compiling, you know, 20 files or something like that. Because, and, and I, I think that's exactly the point, right? Like, you know, when all the projects are small, those things, it, they don't really matter, right? It's not really important, right? Like, yeah, I can show all some files that I'm compiling. That's fine, right? But yeah, when you have a hundred, you're like, no, I don't want that. Please stop. Uh, <laughs> please make it go away. I think this is an example of that. Is this where the message came in to where like if it's taking too long or not too long, but if it's taking a long time to compile? So it, I see that every once in a while if I've got, I don't know, probably Docker running or or something. Is that the same time at 1.3? Yeah, so we added, we introduced this message, but we tweaked the messages because the thing with Elixir is that maybe we want to require a module, 
but that module was not compiled yet. So we had to wait until that other module that you are requiring, maybe using a macron, becomes available. So when we added this, we started getting a bunch of like false positives. Something say, hey, this is taking too long, but it was not because that file was particularly large. It was because it was waiting on something else, right? And I think there's also like an interesting perspective in like software development, like even for when you are like improving things, like in this case, you are simplifying the output, right? Like uh, showing messages on fingers low. Every time you are adding features or you're making changes, it opens up other things, right? Which then may be considered bugs. And that's why sometimes I, I'm very strong to say, though, know, the best way to fix a problem, if possible, is by removing the problem altogether, right? In this case, we can't remove the problem. We have to compile files and they may, may take time, right? But if we can remove the problem altogether, so because every time you're saying, hey, I'm doing this slightly different, the slightly different is going to lead toward to more slightly different things that need to happen. And that can like go on for a really long period of time until it stabilizes. I mean, it's part of software development. We can't hide away from it, but we can run away from it. But if we can like just remove the whole thing, that would be my choice every time. <laughs> yeah, one other mixed thing that was new was the eScript install. Like there's been a lot more more recently around like mix install. This is not that. This is something earlier. What is this thing here? We had mix archive install. And that archive install, it loads a package every time mix starts and loads all of the code. That's how like hack is installed in your system, for example. And a lot of people, they're starting publishing archives and we're starting to get really worried about this because it means that mix the boot's going to get slower. So eScript is like, is like executables, like Elixir executables managed by mix. This is what they are. So the idea was to have another way for people to ship like extensions or things for Elixir developers that is not an archive. And that was the use case. I think what is funny is that when we added this as an alternative, I think it solved the problem. We don't have a lot of archives today. There are not a lot of people say, hey, do archive install this. And projects like xdoc, if you need to use it, you use that a script and this kind of stuff. Like Livebook, if you can install Livebook as a script today, for example. So I think it solved the problem, but I don't think it's like it's very used in the large scale of things. So eScript is a way to package an Elixir project and you're going to run it for your command line as any other like executable that you have in your machine. Do you think with projects like Burrito that eScripts may not be as useful in the future? Or do you still think that there's a good spot for it? I think eScript is useful if you are sharing things between Elixir developers, because you can assume they are going to have Elixir installed. And so they are smaller because you just need the Elixir code. Burrito is like, well, I want to give this to anybody. And they may not have heard about Elixir at all. And eScripts, they don't work for that at all. And burritos, they do. And so Elixir has always been developer-friendly to me. And XUnit is a prime example for that. And I didn't realize this in, until preparing for this episode, but 1.3 and XUnit introduced a couple of key features that a lot of us will use. Am I understanding this, understanding this right? That 1.3 introduced the describe block for Elixir and XUnit? Yeah. And again, I think it's all related. Like people now they're having large applications. They need to write, they have like long test files. The only way you could group your test files was by defining new modules. We didn't have the describe functionality that is there today. 
people were asking for this for a long period of time. And I was like very strong footed. Like, I don't want to add scribes like the ones I've seen in like in my experience in Ruby, because my experience <laughs> in there. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> There's still a huge post that I wrote on, on the Alexir forum that it gets a like still, like every other <laughs> month. <laughs> Where somebody somebody asked, like, why you can't nest them? Because my experience back then, and there's not a criticism to Ruby, the way it would work, like, you would go to a test file. It's in the middle of the file, right? Like, it's on line 300. And they're like, well, what is the setup for this test? And then you have to go up. Nesting of nesting of the scribe, it has a setup block. It has this other setup block. It has this other setup block. Oh, wait, no, this is a describe, but this describe was closed. So I need to forget about that setup block. So it was actually really hard to understand what the test is doing and the setup. So that's why I was like, no, like if I'm going to have this feature this way, I think it's going to lead to bad tests. I don't think this is something we should encourage. So what we realized is that the describe and the setup, they're actually orthogonal to each other. Like you should not be coupling them. So what we did is that you can specify the describe blocks and you can reuse setups. We introduced something called name setup, so you can reuse. So you get all the flexibility to say, hey, I want to describe this, I want to describe that. And you can specify, here's my setup. So you go to a describe, at the top of the describe is going to be all the setup calls necessary, and you can read it as, at a glance. You don't need to worry about all that hierarchy and trying to figure out what setup is actually doing. So it took a while for us to get to this place and figure out that that's how we want to solve this problem. We knew the problem was there, but we didn't know how to solve it. But once we got here, I was like very, very happy with this. And I think it was a very smart decision to not add the nesting. I absolutely agree. <laughs> I, I have to I have to jump between code bases uh, a lot myself. And oh my gosh, it's always much more of a joy to, to jump into an Elixir test case and modify or add something there and understand what's going on. That's the other thing. When, when failures occur and, and they're not in places where you expect it, it's much easier, in my opinion, in an X unit test to debug how we get to the state that we're, we're in. I remember when Describe was first added. Having come from Ruby myself, and our spec is where a lot of that was the pattern was kind of defined. And I was like, oh, yes, finally we have describe blocks, we can group things. And then I wanted to nest it immediately. And it's like, oh, what? why does this not work? But then I totally see the wisdom of it. And I'm grateful for your perspective that you just shared about why that was. And that was an intentional decision. It's not like a technical problem. Oh, we it was too hard to make it nested. It's like, no, no. We don't want it to nest because of the confusion, the complexity that it builds in, that that kind of grows up in your test files if you do that. And I think some of the patterns that we've developed in our test files using describe blocks to describe maybe the way I use it a lot is just to say, I'm talking about this function slash arity, and then here are all my tests around that function. So it's very function oriented for my unit tests. And I really like that. And I think it's a super helpful way to group things. So yeah, it's fun to kind of come back and realize that that was one of those additions. Yeah, and I think 1.3 was really, really good on the testing area. So that's when we got a diff in the error reports. So if you were comparing two data structures with equals equals, 
uh, we now defense tell you where the difference is. Later on, very recently, we added that to pattern matching, but this was only on the equals equals. And Alexei was the one who, who implemented this. And later on, he joined the Elixir team. Built on top of the XREF things that I was telling you, you know, it allows Elixir to know which files depend on which files. We added mix test dash dash stale, and that only run the tests that call code that changed. So very nice for, you know, if somebody's doing the refactor, how is it? The the red green thing, refactor development and testing style. You can just run stale and then it knows which test called code that changed and run those tests in particular, those files to be more precise. We also got like optimizations before 1.3, we would first load all test files and then we would start running tests. And from 1.3, as soon as we loaded the first file, we started running the tests and that would cut down the time to run the test suites reasonably as well because you didn't have to wait for everything to be loaded. We are now doing everything together. The last one, and there is a funny story about this that I want you to bring from the chain log about XUnit is that, so XUnit has the option of running your test concurrently, right? And by default, we used to say that we would have as many test modules running as you have cores in your machine. And that makes sense, right? That makes sense, especially coming from like an Elixir perspective and testing functions. But the thing is that, for example, if you're writing a web application, a lot of your tests, they can be waiting on the database, right? While that test is waiting on the database, we could be running another test that is using the CPU. So what we did is that we doubled the number of test modules we run by default. So it's twice the number of cores that you have. So in theory, right, you should not see any performance improvement, right? Because we're already running run per core, right? Spawning more processes is not going to magically add cores to your machine. But what we saw in Phoenix applications, for example, or any application that had to do any kind of I.O. is that people, they would come back to me and say, hey, my tests got like 30% faster now. <laughs> I remember Ben Wilson telling me like, hey, my test like 20, 30% faster. Uh, and I think we were playing with these and he did the change to his application and then we brought the change to Elixir. So what I want to say here is that maybe there's another speed up hidden there, maybe not, but something that you could try, for example, if you have a lot of async tests is just go to your tests and change the max case option. Today is going to be the double of course in your machine, but trying to set it like two, three times or four times to see if it makes a difference. Maybe it does. Maybe you have really a bunch of IO tests just waiting on the database. Maybe not, but well, just try it out, right? Doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that's because like the Erlang's, you know, scheduler, if the current test is waiting on the disk, the scheduler will switch over to something else that might be able to complete you know, at the same time, but the fact that there is something else waiting or, or in queue to be processed, you know, that's, that's how we're able to leverage and, and, and get that, that performance boost. And I think that's the beauty, right, of their Link Virtual Machine. It doesn't care if you're doing CPU, if you're doing IO, it's just going to figure out the soonest that thing can run. You don't have to write a synchronous code. You don't have to worry about threads or fibers or, you know, what is the kind of workflow that you are doing and come up with specific solutions, right? It's just beautiful that we are just changing a number. And we wrote the whole thing thinking about like CPU concurrency, right? And then all we had to do to better handle IO concurrency, to handle talking to a database or reading the disk is like, is to change a number. 
We, lit we literally just wrote like, I want to multiply this by two and boom, done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited to keep going with this. And I look forward to our next installment, which will be in a month, uh, where we'll go through some more additional change log items. In the meantime, Jose, is there anywhere you want to point people to? No, I just think it would be really nice. I mentioned this during the episode to hear from people like, hey, you know, you talked about this and I did not know it was there. I think it would be nice to see if it's being useful from the usability and just being nice for having tips and things that are there in the language and people could use today to make their life better. Well, thank you, Jose, so much for joining us. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.